Hello and welcome to the World of Intelligence, an open source intelligence podcast brought to you by the Jane's Intelligence Unit. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. We have with us today um, Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat. Hello. Uh, Hi, Elliot. Thanks for joining. Um, Thanks for taking the time to join. And uh, I've mentioned to you already that I was hoping to get you onto this podcast for a while. And every time I've sort of looked at your Twitter feed or the outputs from Bellingcat, I've noted how busy you seem to be. And especially over the last 12 or 18 months, it just has been incredibly um, a busy period for you. And so I, I was almost hesitated contacting you and asking you to come on because uh, I didn't want to sort of interrupt what you were doing because uh, you've been putting out some great stuff as well. It would be great just to get from your perspective uh, a little bit of information, especially for those of the people listening who have perhaps heard of Bellingcat, but maybe you don't know much about it. I mean, I'm sure there'll be lots of people listening to our podcast who know all about Bellingcat and know what you guys are putting out. And I'm probably more interested in getting a sort of behind the scenes take from you of, of how you guys do what you do. But for those who aren't familiar with it, it would be great just if you could kick off with a bit of an introduction to yourself and Bellingcat and describe you know, what Bellingcat is and what you do. Uh, yes, so um, Bannercat is um, it, it's a bit hard to define. We're, we're often called a uh, open source um, investigation collective, um, which basically is a nice way of saying that we do a lot of open source investigation, and we have a team of volunteers and a team of staff members. Um, I, I think one thing that makes Bannercat um, somewhat unusual is that we do a lot of um, our work with crowdsourcing. So often, because we have a kind of big audience that's uh, kind of online and interested in our work we can kind of crowdsource a lot of our work as well so we have the advantage of being able to do the kind of open source investigation side of things but also take uh, you know advantage of this kind of big um, resource we have by you know putting stuff out there and seeing what people come back with Um, it launched in 2014 um, just before mh17 was shot down in eastern ukraine um, and that ended up being one of our first really big stories and back then Bellingcat was just kind of me about fifty thousand pounds I crowdfunded and now um, we're a fully registered charity in uh, the Netherlands with 19 staff members and a team of volunteers so we've expanded quite dramatically from where we started off with. I mean it's been an incredible story Um, you know maybe prior to Bellingcat you could give us a bit of a, a taste of what you were doing yourself in terms of your background in this sort of field of open source intelligence. I think you've described it very neatly as well in terms of what Bellingcat does as a, as a collective. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that, if I may, uh, in a bit. But yeah, if you could give us a sense of what you were working on before, because you know, you'd built up quite a profile in the open source intelligence space even prior to Bellingcat. And it would be um, yeah, maybe an interesting insight for some of our listeners to know a bit more about what you did um, prior to that. Well, back in 2011, I I was kind of working in a completely different area. I was was doing kind of admin and finance work for various companies. Um, But I was very interested in um, all this information that was coming from the conflict in Libya. And I was kind of spending time online arguing with people about it. And a lot of it came down to whether or not stuff could be verified to be true. Um, But back then, you know, this is 2011. You didn't have, you know, hordes of people geolocating videos and photographs like you do now. So I just kind of looked at one of the videos and thought, well, maybe you can see these things on a satellite image and looked at Google Maps and hey, presto, there it was. And I kind of stumbled into kind of what we now all call geolocation. But, you know, back then it was kind of just me on the internet kind of doing stuff. And then in 2012, I started a um, blog called the uh, Brown Moses blog, which was named after a Frank Zappa song I had used as an online online pseudonym for a while um and i kind of just started it just so i had somewhere to put my thoughts on these kind of videos i was finding and at that same time syria was kind of escalating as a conflict so um i started looking at videos coming from there and over time i kind of built my knowledge of what these videos were showing you know i taught myself um and in consultation with arms experts eventually about all the different weapons that were being used um so in that first year i kind of focused a lot on the arms and munitions in the conflicts but then in early 2013 team my first really big story that um reached kind of more of the mainstream was when at the start of 2013 i identified um some very unusual weapons that started appearing in the hands of the rebels in the videos they posted online um and that led to um the new york times picking that up and discovering that it was uh, signs of a secret saudi um smuggling operation to the rebels in uh, the south of syria it was the first time that there was kind of really solid evidence of that and the fact that it was video evidence that the rebels themselves had posted online of what was meant to be a post a, a top secret 
smuggling operation, um, I think caught a lot of people's attention. And then over t- 2013 and the first half of 2014, I, I did more looking at things like the August 21st, 2013 sound attack in Damascus, um, kind of uh, other stories, you know, to do with Syria. And then in 2014, I wanted to launch a new website and that became Bellingcat. It's amazing. Um, and I think what's been particularly incredible in the work that you've done has been that ability, I think, to break stories. And I think that's obviously what's gathered and garnered a lot more attention for you from the mainstream media and uh, publications like the New York Times, etc. Um, but I should also congratulate you. I mean, you, you lost, you won so many awards last year. I lost count of um, the number of awards Bellingcat was winning. Um, but uh, what I what I find particularly impactful about the work you've been doing over the years, and particularly since Bellingcat began has been that ability, I think, to broaden out the audience for open source intelligence and the kind of people that are interested in it. I mean, as you're aware from the Jane's perspective, we approach it very much from a sort of traditional defense perspective of open source intelligence being a complement to other types of intelligence, um, but it not perhaps being seen uh, in the way that you've presented it, I think, in in conjunction with and looping back to what you mentioned earlier about crowdsourcing, the kinds of people you can get involved in doing investigative research. So uh, for me, it's uh, I find when I'm looking at and reading the output that you're producing, it's almost hard to define sometimes. Or it's hard to put it into one box or uh, sort of some of the traditional definitions of open source intelligence we might have had because you're crossing so many boundaries into journalism and into crowdsourcing. Um, how have you found that? How have you found that going from sort of being that person on your own doing that research to then getting so many other people involved and, and having that support and uh, input from such a variety of experts on the investigations that you've done? I think the kind of field that has grown in the last, I would say, eight or nine years from about 2011 onwards um, is something that in a way is it does they do open source investigations and kind of that's what i was doing but really we had, i think the people who were involved with that didn't come from the traditional uh austin community so they kind of adopted the language of that community to describe their own work where sometimes it really didn't fit that well because you know we aren't trying to produce an intelligence product at the end of this process we're trying to produce a whole range of products you look at the work of the um team of the new york times who are doing a lot of this work now that is for journalism but i think most people in the austin community would recognize those techniques as something they would use um we've spoken a lot with um you know various people who've been involved with this field and there is a kind of um, community now from a kind of human rights perspective who've, who are involved with um bodies like the international criminal court and um triple i on syria um who are kind of reviewing the language that we use to describe what we're doing because we don't want to describe it really as um awesome because it then you know puts the kind of weight on the intelligence side of it. So I I think the term we've all settled on as a group is online open source investigation, which can be part of OSINT, but it focuses more on the fact that this is open source, it's online. Um, And and we try and make that definition quite clear. So that community has in a way grown grown separately from the more traditional OSINT community, even though there's an obvious amount of overlap. But from there, you get people from a whole range of different backgrounds. And when I started the Brown Moses blog, I was kind of because I was just like some random person on the internet, I wasn't seen as belonging to any particular, um, you know, uh, area of expert, you know, expertise. I wasn't someone who was considered a journalist or an Austin person. I was just some blogger on the internet with a funny name blog. So I think from there, it, for me, it's always been about actually connecting with these different communities and actually connecting them to each other. Because I think the big part of this work is having a network and it's not just a network of experts talking to each other, but also an expert, uh, a network of um, just normal people. Like we have, you know, our followers on Twitter who sometimes get involved. I mean, that's been very powerful with um, the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign, where Europol asked to identify people, members of the public, to identify objects they've taken from abuse imagery. And they were sharing this on social media, but because Bellingham has such a large audience, I thought we can amplify this. And thanks to that, it was very um, successful. That's a really interesting example um, because you know we we've been delivering open source intelligence training at Jane's for for, for over ten years or so, but um, mainly mainly into sort of government and um, military agencies, those kinds of bodies who um, want to learn more about how to uh, make use of open source information. Which you know, if they're not using, then they potentially are missing out on things which could could give them interesting uh, insight into what's happening in different parts of the world. Um, what uh, I think is 
always slightly difficult for them is, you know, I mean, we get, as an example, we get people coming along to our training courses and they'll say something like this to me, which will be, um, oh, have you seen the, the the really cool stuff that Bellingcat do? And I say, yeah, yeah, they do some amazing investigations. And they'll say, um, can you teach us to do that? <laughs> and, uh, um, and I always say, I'd love to, but there's more, you know, it's it's not an individual task. It's um, It involves a network. It involves crowdsourcing. It involves um, quite often pooling together expertise. Um, and I think it's really encouraging that you're able to use that um, capability, that network, that outreach to help in cases like the one you mentioned from Europol, where um, you know those investigations are so potentially wide ranging and difficult for a, any kind of single body to to handle, um, that you're bringing together all of that uh, attention and um, expert understanding and knowledge uh, to have an impact. You know, it's it's fantastic work. Um, you know, did you did you have them reaching out to you, or did did you go to them and say actually we can help you with this? Well, initially, um, we just saw it was on social media and we started sharing it. But we've also been using a platform called um, Check, um, which is produced by an organization called Meden. And it allows you to basically share kind of one open source object, a photograph, a video, whatever it may be, and then set a verification task for it. And then we were putting these items on there and kind of directing people there to add include their comments. So we kind of structured it a bit more so people could get involved, see what people are saying without having to rely on Twitter as a medium for that, which really isn't ideal for this. Um, what happened then is about about nine months into it, um, Europol reached out to us directly and asked to kind of talk to us about it. And they were kind of very pleased with the results because it had increased, you know, the tips they were getting. I, I think it's now led to like um, s- several arrests and children being rescued as well. So it's had a, you know, an actual impact. But um, they wanted kind of advice on, you know, d- to discuss how they could do this better in a way. And they said, oh, could we thank Bellingcat directly? And I said, don't do that because then you uh. get all the nutters who hate Bellingcat kind of going after you for it, mm. um, which is a sad fact of life. But one thing we're doing now with um, Bellingcat is we're working to redesign our website. Um, we, we're hoping um, the aim is at the moment to, is to have a volunteer section where we can be a lot more organized about getting people involved because we always have people saying, how can I get involved? And it's very difficult to get people involved when um this you know trust is a big issue it's like we just can't invite every single person in to become part of a big slack team because we don't know who's who so mm. it takes a while to build that track and, and especially now we've had so much attention from uh, the russian federation in particular um that's particularly difficult but we want a place where people can go and actually contribute so by having this volunteer section we'll have a place for them to go and alongside that we'll we've got this very popular document that's online at the moment that's uh, a list of basically all the to- open source investigation tools we can find uh, organized uh, but it's a Google Doc, and we want to actually move that onto our new website. So if you read a Bellingcat article and you see a tool being used, you'll be able to click on that tool at the end of the um, article, and it'll take you to a page where there's lots of examples of the tools being used, case studies, guides, and external links to make it easier for people to find and use open source investigation-related tools. Because I think it's really with open source investigation, it's about having a toolbox and knowing how all the tools work. And then when you approach a problem, you have a variety of a variety of ways approaching it. Um, and when we do our training workshops, that's what we try and teach. We usually start with quite basic stuff, but the point is that we're trying to build people's understanding of every tool. So when we start setting more and more complex tasks as part of these workshops, they actually kind of say, oh, I can use this, this, and this, and then come up with a solution. It's really interesting you mentioned tools. And, and it's something we've discussed on previous podcast episodes is, um, you know, when we are delivering training, you do get people coming along and saying, oh, can you just show us all the good tools? Um, and I don't, I, I, it'd be great to get your thoughts on this. But, you know, I think the way that you're presenting it and the way that you're presenting case studies on the Bellingcat website is really useful because um, it's not just about the tools themselves. You know, you've got to be able to put it into a workflow and think about when you can use those tools and when they're going to be useful, when they'll be appropriate and which ones to pick. And I think that's... That's often the challenge. It's um, uh, do you, and, and do you find that in terms of either the training you deliver or working with others um, at Bellingcat that you know as as much as you can have lots of great tools out there, sometimes there's not there's not always the understanding of when and where you might use them. 
Yeah, I, I think as well that often people come to us and they they might have a tool they've designed and they are trying to design a tool. I've noticed less people doing this, but a tool that kind of tries to do every open source thing. It says, okay, this is going to help you verify an image. It'll look up 20 search engines and do all this stuff. And then no one ends up really using them because often when you're doing an investigation, you know through experience which are the most effective tools to you know find your route to the solution. And you know if one tool doesn't work, you know there's three others that could do something similar. So we, we publish a couple of weeks ago an article about um, the different search engines and the reverse image search capabilities. Oh, yes. Because um, mm. most people know about Google reverse image search, but there's also um, Bing we showed off and uh, Yandex reverse image search. And we made the point that through all the tests we did, the Yandex image search tends to give the best results, but that's probably the one that's known less by everyone. But it's this it's a tool that does the same thing. It just does it slightly differently. So it's educating people about those tools and saying, you know, there's more than one way of doing this. And... We do that through our workshops. We do that through writing these case studies. We do that sometimes by doing the investigations and explaining, you know, step by step how we did it as well. Mm, I think that's, that's really beneficial. Um, uh, in terms of the work that you're, you're now doing with Bellingcat, obviously you mentioned you've got a, a growing team and um, you've got more stable sort of funding sources, etc. Um, you know, the, the investigations you've done have, have garnered a lot of attention. Obviously, MH17 was. Um, key, I think that you know the the investigation that Bellingcat produced w- was vital for actually getting everyone to accept what happened um, because y- you know you you did such a great job of putting together the evidence and, and presenting it, um, and you've hinted a little bit at some of the challenges that's caused you in terms of being targeted as a result. But what's sort of um, what's the, the the overall strategic direction for Bellingcat? I mean, do you have a sort of set of um, topics or subjects that you're going to be particularly focused on either now or, or going forward or is it a case of picking up whatever whatever cases seem interesting at the time? It, it's kind of in two areas that are related at the moment. We're looking at ways to kind of expand the community of people who are doing this, both keen amateurs and kind of more experts and that can be through training, this volunteer section we're launching. Um, we were looking as well at working with universities to train students, master um, at universities to do local investigations and we're starting that off in the Netherlands with the hope that if they can engage with local issues, they'll realise they can have real impact on the world by doing this kind of investigation. Um, so there's kind of this community growth and ex- expansion that we're working on um the other area we're looking into is because we're now often approached by people interested in how um open source investigations bellingcat has done or just open source investigation in general can be used um, for justice and accountability we're looking at the processes that we've used to do investigations and improving them because one thing i've discovered doing the mh17 stuff is we did that when we launched Bellingcat. It was basically me. We didn't have any real process for archiving or saving content. And now, three or four years later, um, I started getting you know, people reaching out from um, lawyers who are involved with court cases against Russia, uh, who are now saying, can you make a submission about what you found, which we're happy to do. The problem is we're discovering a lot of links that we just discovered back in 2014 and, of course, dead now. So um, what we've done now is um, we've developed a new process working with the Global Legal Action Network to um, basically archive and investigate material up to a standard where we could basically submit our investigations directly to a court along with archive material. So with that, we've been working a lot with the um, Syrian Archive, who've uh, renamed themselves Monomic. So the Syrian Archive is a platform that's been archiving videos from Syria, but they've expanded into other areas. Um, We've been working with uh, Hunchly, which is a handy open source investigation tool for recording your activity. So that's the kind of archiving side of it. And then we're looking at the whole process um, of how we investigate and seeing how we can improve different elements of that. And we've, we've already um, uh, been working on investigations related to Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, which we've been uh, publishing on yemen.bellingcat.com. Um, and they uh, are using this new process for archiving and investigation, but they've also been submitted as part of the um, current government um, consultation on um, arms export agreements with Saudi Arabia. And our hope is that we can have more examples where we do this kind of research and then it can kind of be used in a courtroom situation or a legal situation so we can actually see how it's kind of attacked um, because it's very important that we continually refine the process to make it as good as possible but also we don't overdo it and get go to the point where it actually just takes forever to do it, even a simple investigation because we have so much of a so many parts of this process so it's kind of setting a minimum standard for our work that will you know that can be applied not only to Bellingcat but we can also export to different organizations 
I think that's a really interesting initiative, and I think there's potential there to create probably something that would be seen as a something of a, an industry standard, if we can call it that. Um, because I think that's a question that comes up a lot for us as well. Is you know how do we record and capture things that would be useful, um, both from an archiving perspective, because obviously, as you say, that there's a lot of stuff that you know we look at in our research, which is is sort of here today and gone tomorrow, because a lot of online content can be very ephemeral. Um, but there's also then that perspective of actually when somebody does come back to have a look at it later, how do you how do you show them that content or how do you potentially use it evidentially as well? Um, so yeah, I think that that's that, that that's something that I think will will be necessary for everybody involved in open source intelligence to adopt um, those levels of uh, rigor in terms of archiving and and retrieving information. Um, as, as you're as you're sort of or as you have moved uh, you know the last five years or so into that area of presenting more information as evidence, um, obviously verification has been a massive challenge and that's been something you've been involved in right from the beginning. How have, how has that developed in terms of as a challenge? Has it become more difficult? Do you feel it's gotten easier in some ways or is it a bit of both? It's one of these things that the better you get at doing verification and kind of the more sure you want to be about verification, um, the more time you spend doing it, even if you get really good at it. So, um, I mean, now when we investigate an incident, we have a much better understanding of all the kind of potential uh, angles we can approach it from and how people who are kind of going to attack it are going to approach it. Um, and having spent, you know, I, I kind of start doing this because of my online activity. Um, so I was always very aware of how people will attack your work, even in a very disingenuous manner. But you still have to kind of be prepared for that. And in a way... I think from a very early point, I was always very careful about making statements that I could back up with direct evidence, or if I couldn't be sure of something, I would be very clear that I wasn't sure of it. And that's kind of what we try and get across in our um, writing as well. But it, it, it really, what happens now, we, we kind of have a process we've broken down into three steps, and it's similar to the intelligence process. But I, I came up with this idea before I knew what that was. So <laughs> right. but we, we call it um, identify, verify, and amplify. So right. we identify information, either kind of actively searching for it or maybe in a more passive way with people sending stuff. Um, we verify it, which is you know a big part of it. Mm. And then the amplification came, amplification stage comes. So because we verify the information we've identified, we can use it in a variety of different products. It, like with MH17, we wrote dozens of articles. We wrote lengthy reports. Um, we've been involved with television programs about it. We've um, produced you know this six-part podcast series that mm. we've um, done that you know goes into it in great depth. But it's all based off the same verified information that we've um, identified earlier. And kind of my approach is that there can be multiple ways to tell the same story or explain the events in a multiple ways. So, um, you know, with MH17, we did the podcast five years in that we were, we've revisited it. We're doing a second series of the podcast that um, focuses on the um, uh, BBC Africa Eye investigation, Anatomy of a Killing. It was a video from Cameroon where two women were and two children were marched off the road by soldiers and executed. Um, it's a horrific video, but the BBC did this investigation with Amnesty and Balancat, and now we're doing a podcast series because the trials have come up and our third season will look at the um, activities of the Russian intelligence unit unit 29155 in Europe which is something we've been doing a lot of writing on as well so that takes all the stuff we've already been doing and then kind of repackages it into a new format that can reach a wider audience and get them kind of drawn into um, hopefully open source investigation themselves it's interesting yeah that that amplification aspect i mean um and those are those are great case studies you know we we had um ben strick from BB, the bbc on a previous podcast episode talking about that the cameroon investigation and um you know just it, it really does show the art of the possible when it comes to using information which is open source which is out there um you know do you um at bellingcat though are you sort of conscious that what you're doing is um is is very specialized though in, in many ways in that you do need to perhaps find and uh, bring into the network and bring into the organization people with the right skills and expertise who can do that and it's not it's not always easy to find perhaps um generalist researchers who can who can do some of the particularly the more detailed image verification or video verification um you know and do you find it hard or have you found it hard to find the right kind of skills or is that is that something you're finding easier now that you've gone and branched out into training and you're, you're helping encourage uh, the promotion of those skills 
Well, even quite early on when I was doing the Brown Roses blog, I was um, kind of in touch with a lot of um, kind of experts because they saw what I was publishing and I was pretty much the only person who was bothering to look at this stuff. So they kind of asked me about it and then I started talking to them and it was kind of very early on, it was a lot of kind of arms and munitions experts, especially linked to um, the kind of big human rights NGOs. But I kind of learned from them and uh, I found cool stuff for them to look at. Um, so then, you know, as... I've kind of gone on, I've built more of these relationships. So now when we need kind of expert advice, we have a whole pool of people we can use for that. Um, sometimes we reach out to new organizations because we've um, done, we're doing something new. So when we were looking into these um, GRU officers that we started identifying, um, we started using um, uh, voice analysis, forensic voice analysis. So there we reached out to a few universities where they do that. Um, so we could get the export view. Same with when we started doing um, finding all these IDs of uh, all these uh, sports nutrition salesmen who were hung, hanging around Salisbury when Sergi Skipper was poisoned. We started using, um, we spoke to a university who could do facial recognition to compare the photograph we had from the ID we had acquired, their real ID and their fake identity to have at least that kind of extra level. So as we kind of learn more and kind of find out about these techniques, we try and pull them in more into our investigations. So sometimes those investigations can be very simple. I mean, the PS752 investigation we did um, a week ago, um, it, it was actually quite a simple investigation because we had already really done the same kind of investigation with MH17. So we kind of knew what we were going to be looking for. So with MH17, one of the first things we did is kind of piece together the photographs of the wreckage to see if there was any clear signs of like a warhead damage. Um, but so we knew with uh, PS752 that we needed to look at similar images, but then kind of things moved along more quickly because then this image of the remains of a Tor anti-aircraft missile came on, which unfortunately wasn't geolocatable. And then this video that appeared to show the aircraft being hit by a missile um, and that we could geolocate. And that all of a sudden became this huge story, which really it was a very simple geolocation that we did. It's just it was such a big story at the time that it got a massive amount of pickup. Mm. No, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so it's in, it's interesting you've, you've built that up over time and you've, you've got those links to the, to the right kinds of experts and you're able to reach out to them and, and get those positive responses and, and that help. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, you, you sort of touched on some of the more negative attention, I suppose, that you've received um, since starting up some of these investigations. Has that hampered any of your current investigations in terms of you know, either trying to crowdsource information or being drawn to information which you're then looking at and thinking, hang on, this is almost sort of deliberately fake. It's almost been designed for us to find. Uh, has that occurred at all? I, I think by default, we're suspicious of anything we find. You always try and verify something from multiple angles and understand it as you know part of a network of information. So I'm never too worried about fake information being introduced because we can identify that pretty quickly and it's hard to make a really genuinely good fake and you know people have tried to do that i mean the most absurd example is of course when the russian mod used a screenshot from a computer game as evidence that the u.s was helping isis um, <laughs> but this is the level of people we're dealing with so it makes it rather easier when you're dealing with people who are massively incompetent um and it's like when we're dealing with russia they have the kind of the same pattern of behavior again and again very rarely do the russians actually come up with their own ideas when they're having their various press conferences and announcements they usually steal it from somewhere else um it's like we had this opcw meeting at the un security council mm -hmm. um on monday of this week where russia um basically read out his claims why the opcw was you know couldn't investigate stuff that they were biased and they were just repeating claims made by someone else and those claims have already, already been addressed and debunked by us so it kind of makes it easy for us when they have that pattern of behavior um i mean what's also i find very interesting is a lot of people don't really appreciate this um kind of alternative media ecosystems that exist out there um we've interacted a lot i think is a way to describe it with the kind of media ecosystem that's kind of uh is kind of focused on uh conflicts uh particularly syria um they tend to be made up of kind of conspiratorially minded anti-imperialist types but it's always the same network of individuals and websites that are sharing the same articles so within this kind of echo chamber they have this very kind of vibrant ecosystem which they i think they think has more impact than uh it really does but that's Something that then I think um, some people who aren't as online as other people notice, they might be more academic, I found, and they think they must be Russian trolls. It must be a Russian troll factory because they can't understand why people, supposedly real people, would believe stuff that's so 
patently absurd. But they really do believe this stuff because they have a whole echo chamber that is constantly reinforcing these messages. Um, and that's kind of who you tend to have more interactions of. And then, of course, Russia or whoever needs uh, you know, some, you know, a bit of amplification uses those individuals and sticks them on Russia Today or brings them to the UN to talk about why the White Helmets are all Al-Qaeda and those kind of things. Um, and I, I, I think um, it was best reflected in a report that um, uh, a research called Kate Starbird did on the White Helmet where she kind of really did a good job of mapping these networks out and I'd really recommend that to anyone who really wants to understand how this kind of alternative media um, echo chamber uh, kind of operates. That's a great tip. I think everybody who's involved in doing open, open source intelligence, open source research really needs to have a good understanding of how these kinds of um, you know disinformation operations are, are working um, and uh, to have, have an idea of how to spot and verify content um, uh, to the extent that you know we, we can do it quickly, or you know to build up the expertise to do it in in more detail. Um, you know, it's interesting you touch on the sort of the uh, disinformation aspects of amplification. You know, when you and you, when you talk about amplification in your own process, is it is it a competitive sort of um, a, a process of amplification that you're having to compete against these other sort of voices that are trying to put out counter narratives that are you know based that are baseless. I, I think there is sometimes. I mean, oft, often you have to recognise that some of the people who are making the most noise are getting the less least attention, and sometimes it's the people themselves who are promoting these counterclaims who are actually doing the most damage to them. Um, the OPCW thing being a good example. I think um, the. the the two leakers, this Ian Henderson and this um, mysterious Alex figure, did you know the worst possible thing they could do to their reputations by first approaching this kind of working group on media and propaganda on Syria, whatever they call themselves, which I, I think anyone who knows about chemical weapons in Syria um, probably knows about them and probably has a very low opinion of them, unless they're part of this kind of alternative media echo chamber. So um, when people are going, oh, why won't the mainstream media pick this up? It's because the leakers have chosen to go to the least credible people possible in the eyes of the mainstream media. So in a way, they can kind of completely undermine their own messages by the fact of who they are um but it, it, it is something that i i think you kind of have to pick your battles because especially now Bennett is more well known by engaging with arguments on topics that are you know ridiculous or easily debunked you can actually just amplify those bits of misinformation to the audience who may be observing that and you might not want to do that so i think sometimes you need to kind of pick your online battles when it comes to um, countering disinformation. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, um, you've touched there on the OPCW case. And for anyone who's not familiar with that, it might be useful just to, to sort of briefly explain what's happened there. Because um, I've sort of followed it a, a little bit. And, you know, we've covered uh, chemical weapons incidents in some of the research that my team have done over the past year looking at Syria. Um, but yeah, did you want to just sort of briefly explain that that example of um, trying to counter somebody else's uh, disinformation. Yeah, so over the um, past year, two um, leakers, former staff members at the OPCW, have um, published um, documents that they claim undermined the conclusions of the OPCW fact-finding mission on the Duma chemical attack. Um one set of documents was a, a, an engineering report by someone called Ian Henderson, um, which made various claims where he basically said it can't have been a chemical attack. But then this guy, um, Alex, is his pseudonym. He, uh, several months later, publishes emails from the OPCW, which he claims shows a cover-up. Um, this was reported by um, Peter Hitchens in, in the uh, Mail. Uh, I think Robert Fisk did some stuff on it. Um, so it kind of... More than um, other cases, it kind of went into a bit more into the mainstream, although it really didn't. The problem is these documents are very complicated, and unless you have a real in-depth understanding of you know what the OPCW has published and other details, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't really understand that. For example, some of the concerns addressed uh, raised by these two figures were actually addressed in the final OPCW report, um, and there's kind of lots of issues we, we, we've done articles on Bellingcat where we've really gone in depth into both of these links and kind of looking into the claims they're making. And there's significant issues with both. But the people who want to discredit the OPCW, who want to discredit the claims that the chemical weapons have been used in Syria, don't really care. 
They're really um, about, they're more about the impression that something dodgy is going on at the OPCW rather than the facts of what's actually going on at the OPCW because their agenda is to attack the OPCW. And like we had, um, you know, this week we've had Russia at the UN Security Council bringing these claims, you know, using them to attack the OPCW at the UN Security Council. But within that, the claims they're making are ones that we've kind of addressed and debunked, but it doesn't matter it's the noise it's the sound of the noise they're making which is important to them not actually what that those noises mean yeah no that's uh, it sounds like a typical sort of example of when they're trying to basically use bluff and bluster to to sort of cause people to doubt the opcw when there's nothing there to it right and it, and and it's it just sort of reinforces the case as you say that actually that there isn't a case against it and 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 they they, they sort of shoot themselves in the foot ultimately but it, it does enough, I suppose, in the short term to create the or to, to serve their agenda, you know. If it, so it almost doesn't matter to them the quality of the disinformation they're putting out. It's just putting out the it's, it's the quantity almost, really, isn't it? Um, to an extent, yeah. I mean, often um, this stuff bounces around the kind of alternative media ecosystem and has no real impact. But this was a rare example where, because I think in particular what Peter, Peter Hitchens wrote on the mail as he was kind of cosplaying uh, Seymour Hersh about there being a, you know, this is just like the dodgy dossier that led to the Iraq war. It's not at all, but it makes a really good headline when you stick that on a website and um, Peter Hitchens knowledge of chemical weapon use in Syria like much of these people is extremely limited it usually only refers to the kind of really big well-known chemical attacks not the dozens if not hundreds of attacks that occurred with no one really taking any notice of them um, because they aren't really engaged with the topic in any serious way they're just you know full of bluster they want some nice headlines they want to make their point and they want to attack the OPCW but ultimately it's not about the facts it's about just the appearance it's just so they can you know convince people of something that really isn't true although i'm sure in many cases they've convinced themselves it's true because they don't haven't really looked into it in a way they should have done and they might not even be you know equipped to do that or even aware they they should be doing it in the first place no for sure and so in terms of the and sort of moving on to think about the the kind of work that you're you're doing at bellingcat um the types of information that you're using and the, the research you're able to do you know, one of the things that or topics that uh, that we've been picking up in uh, some of our po- podcast episodes has been around the the, the question of is it getting harder? Um, it, are you finding that as more and more of the people you might want to investigate become aware of what you can do with their information, that they're starting to get more security conscious, they're starting to not post as much information online. And uh, on, in relation to that, are you finding that some of the online platforms where we might find useful information, uh, you know, from our perspective at Jane, certainly we found that some of the social media platforms, et cetera, are getting harder to access uh, in many ways. And, um, you know, that there's a, a stronger move towards privacy of online information now. Um, so, again, is that something that's affecting your work at Bellingcat? I think the biggest effect does come more from the social media companies rather than the users themselves, because we can look at a whole range of subjects. Whilst we focus a lot on, um, you know, Syria and Russia, um, we you know look into other areas. And there, these are often in countries where people have never heard of open source investigation, and they don't know if they should be, you know, not publishing their entire lives on their social media accounts. But what we found is actually the social media companies, as they've tried to crack down on the abuse of their platforms, uh, either through you know the way data is being used or through um, you know, violent content and extremist content being shared, it actually makes it more difficult for us to do investigations. And one thing that's been quite interesting for me is how the ICC um, has become more interested in using open source. And at the same time, the sources they might be using would get shut down before they could actually open in an investigation and preserve those sources. So in a way, it makes the kind of um, responsibility of the kind of almost, maybe you could call them first responder organizations like Bellingcat to archive that material as they find it even more um, crucial to those kind of investigations um, and especially with the ICC's relationship with the US getting information from the social media companies that are based there um, is not you know they can't demand this information they can ask nicely but um, ultimately it's down to the social media companies what they share with organizations like the ICC um, so I, I think it then raises the question of you know organizations who are doing open source investigation if they have a responsibility to archive this information how do you make it accessible to those justice and accountability bodies um, and that's kind of another area that we're looking into at the moment 
Okay, so yeah, the, the the sort of story and that information is definitely becoming more important. I think for everyone all around. Um, what what are you sort of what's your feeling in terms of where the information space is is going um, in terms of future challenges, future developments, and also you know what do you see coming next for Bellingcat? What are your plans for? Um, you mentioned the podcast sort of series you've got coming up, but what else is uh, is on the agenda for Bellingcat over the next uh, sort of months and, and maybe even years to come? So it's hard to predict things with tools, but one thing we're particularly looking into is now we're doing all this archiving and collecting all these videos and adding metadata to it. How do we make these uh, data sets more useful? Um, you know, is there ways to use machine le learning to identify objects in them? And that's something that the Syrian Archive has been doing with cluster munitions, uh, forensic architecture. They did a project on Ukraine where they used um, uh, a system to identify tanks in video footage. And I think we're going to see more and more interesting ways of taking these vast amounts of video and photographic uh, you know, archives and turning it into, you know, using that data in different ways. So I, I think that's kind of where we're focusing on the kind of development and technology side. Um, as for the activities of Bellingcat, I mean, we've got more series of our um, podcast uh, planned. We're um, I'm working on a book at the moment that should be out either late this year or early next year, um, if I finish oh, it. Oh, fantastic. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what's, yeah. the, what's the book on? Uh, yeah, Can so uh, the book is going to be um, kind of about myself and Balancat and, uh, you know, how open source has kind of developed from my perspective, um, aware that my perspective is not the only perspective, but it, it's, yeah, it's kind of really digging into it, talking about some of our investigations in a lot more depth and, you know, how everything's kind of developed and, um, you know, particularly focusing on those areas I've mentioned around uh, kind of online communities for good and bad Um and then, oh, I'm all, yeah, yeah, and we're also um, working on a couple of other secret projects that are very major, oh. but will uh, not relate to investigations, but other things. But you'll hear okay. about those soon enough. Um, yeah, and we're continuing our investigations. We've still got lots and lots to do on the um, unit type 29155 that was linked to the Scripple poisoning and other um, stuff in Europe. So um, I expect we'll see a lot more on that. Um, we, we're working on a, another MH17 investigation since the um, uh, joint investigation team announced a call for more uh, details on some of the suspects. So we're digging into that as well. So um, we've got plenty to keep ourselves busy and we're hoping we can um, do more work on our Yemen project and continue to develop that new process. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be able to start um, packaging, packaging it up and deploying it to other organizations who might want to use it. Ah, so in terms of that, just to pick up on that one, so when you say packaging it up, how do you mean? What, what, would, it, what would it look like and what would they do with it? Well, I mean, one one thing we want to do is make sure whatever we produce is either free or cheap because we want to share it with organisations who probably don't have much of a budget. I mean, we don't have a massive budget, but we've probably got uh, more than some of the organisations who are working on Syria at the moment. So um, it, it's kind of laying out the process, both the methodology for investigation and the kind of more technical side of things when it comes to the archiving of the material. Um, and then um, we're, we've been working, uh, or a company called Benetech has been working with the Syrian Archive to create an indexing system that will um, index these videos um, in a way that makes it easiest for people to look at figure out who has the same videos without actually looking at the content themselves so people can be secure with their own content and know uh, and not have to share it with every single person in the world before someone can use it so um, that is also kind of very crucial to, to kind of developing this process where we can then start setting up people you know if there was like 20 organizations who had archives for Yemen, we could kind of uh, help them use this new process and help um, index their archives and, you know, make it useful information for those people doing investigations. Because really it's making, in a way, taking the video that someone may have filmed on the ground, you know, in the moment and then turning it into something that's useful and discoverable by the kind of justice and accountabilities body, the kind of people on the ground recording this stuff want it to find mm. yeah um, no doubt and no doubt. you know youtube is not the platform for doing that um so we have to come up with something else interesting so i mean i, I think you touched on an important point there in terms of not just getting all of the data but actually making it useful for people and actually allowing others to share it and and do work with it and building on um the value that you you, you sort of have within that information um that's I mean that's a huge challenge, and it's it's something that obviously we've we've wrestled with at Jane's for for years in terms of um, as the, you know you have more technical developments in the way that you can access and uh, categorize data and and use it and link it together. Um, there's much more that people expect you to be able to do with it. There's more that you want to do with it, and uh, it's actually a much more 
difficult challenge than many people appreciate. So yeah, I look forward to sort of hearing more about that as that project develops and as you as you start to roll things out um, to other organisations, seeing seeing what comes of it. Um, what's um, what's sort of uh, I think really uh, fascinating from our perspective as well is looking at some of what the work that you're doing learning from some of those case studies as well um, and, and trying to also share and, and provide any thoughts that we can um, you know anything that comes up in terms of the investigations you're working on uh, at uh, Bellingcat, we'll be we'll be observing closely, and we'll you know again if there's anything that we can do at Jane's to help, then do get in touch. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll keep watching with fascination. Um, was there any any other stuff that you, you you had on your mind that you wanted to sort of talk about in terms of things that Bellingcat are doing that or the the sort of direction you're going in? Um, I think I've covered everything in the uh, last forty minutes or so. I mean, I've got most of it covered. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's been, it's, been, it's been fascinating talking to you. I mean, I had one last question, really, which was relating to some of the investigative work that you do, where you are sort of um, getting crowdsourced information or sometimes tip-offs. And, uh, you know, are you, do you find that Bellingcat now is at a stage where you're at a, at a point where you can attract and receive information that is really difficult for others to get hold of? And is it, it almost goes beyond open source information because it's not necessarily stuff that anybody's going to be able to find. It's it's just stuff which you're, you're you're attracting or being sent either as tip-offs or, or, or crowdsourced information. Yeah, I mean, we do get a lot more um, people kind of emailing us. Um, I would say about ninety nine percent of those are not kind of relevant to our work. Um, it might be people asking about um, like because we did MH seventeen. Everyone wants to know about MH three seven zero, which crashed somewhere in the middle of the Pacific, from what I understand, which is not an easy one for us to do because there's not loads of you know fishermen taking selfies. You know, with planes crashing in the background, sure. it's just yeah, you know, no it's, indeed, it's yeah. just a huge ocean. Yeah. So we can't do work with that. Um, we also get um, kind of people who are um, have some really interesting ideas, but aren't the kind of ideas that we want to kind of look into, like you know where you can find dragons and you know who the <laughs> Illuminati we are, you know that kind of okay. stuff. Yeah. Um, but there is some stuff that gets sent to us, and the, the big issue we have at the moment is because we have we, we're at absolute full capacity at the moment. It's very difficult to take on other work, and I hate turning away. You know, people are saying, oh, you know have a really good and interesting investigation to do but we just don't have the resources to do that um so that was uh, that's that's always difficult to do when we're turning them away what's quite cool though is because um we are because so many people interested in open source investigation know our work it's like with ps752 um immediately people started seeing those videos and photographs even though we didn't ask for them but we had loads and loads of this stomach coming through and lots of i think you know people heard ukraine plane crash and they associated that with bellingcat so they started sending us lots of stuff but that meant then we could kind of engage with that and get a lot of these videos as soon as they appeared online as soon as they were shared and with ps752 as well a lot was being shared on telegram and then reshared on twitter so then people were finding stuff on telegram and then sending it to us directly so that was actually something that was you know in, in a way it kind of made this kind of human search engine for us that we didn't even have to <laughs> type anything into they just went off and did it for us but that's also something that i think gives us a advantage over a lot of other organizations that we're so well known for this particular kind of work and you know doing crowdsourcing that people will send us stuff and sometimes it can be really really useful and you know lead us to kind of big discoveries like with the iran um shoot down ps752 the video that sh shows the apparent moment of the shoot down um someone just sent that to me like literally nothing in the tweet just the video wow. and i didn't even bother watching it for 10 minutes because i was like looking at other tweets because i'm getting loads of them yeah and then i watched it and i was like what's this and then i saw what happened i was like oh god we better start looking into this one what was great there, because we had already done the work looking for other stuff in the area, we almost immediately recognised the area that this video was shot in and it allowed us to geolocate it very, very quickly, which meant we could get it out there before pretty much anyone else could. Um, and also because we were able to collaborate with the New York Times on that, we were able to kind of help them do that and look into some of the other videos they were looking into and they could produce their own thing on that. But um, yeah, being able to get stuff out really, really quickly like that, I think helps, you know, when you have a lot of competing narratives as well, um, can help kind of clarify what's you know, going on very quickly. It's really interesting. And uh, timeliness, I guess, is an issue there as well in terms of, you know, that rush to uh, try and get on top of what's going on in a developing situation, something that, you know, where the information is changing quickly. Um, you know, do, from, from a Bellingcat perspective, do you, are you trying to get 
stuff uh, or assessments out there as quickly as possible? Or would you prefer to sort of take your time, wait until you've got all of the information in that you could get, evaluate it, et cetera, and put out something which you know is, is, is more reliable? It depends. Um, it's like that video of the plane shoot down. There we realised how significant it was and we, we were able to geolocate it really quickly. So we kind of did a Twitter thread about on it that kind of got a lot of uh, interest. But I said we should write this up and put it out there and um, put it on the website just so there's like a permanent link somewhere for people to find. Um, so in that case, that was definitely one way it was valuable. In other investigations, especially ones that are looking at incidents that have happened, you know, some time ago, it's just worth doing the whole investigation. But it's really about, you know, looking at how much, you know, how interested people are about certain information. I mean, sometimes it doesn't even have to be, you know, an actual piece of investigative work. With um, following the Christchurch uh, massacre, there was a manifesto um, put online. So this is one of these alt-right mass shooters. Um, and there was a manifesto put online. Um, and this shooting happened uh, overnight because it was in New Zealand. Um, one of my team members, Robert Evans, who was in the US, he saw uh, it was happening and he specializes in this particular area. And he recognized that the manifesto was actually... Uh, written in a way as a uh, basically an in-joke for 8chan or a series of in-jokes and the, the whole idea of the manifesto was basically to trick the media into reporting about the manifesto in a serious way and it would have been the shooter's like final joke against the mainstream society that he was railing against um, but what um, happened because we he recognised that he wrote an article we got out at like 7am explaining what this manifesto was actually about um, and that ended up being hugely influential in the way it was actually reported because lots of journalists saw that it was shared very very widely very quickly it was like you know very well read article um and then the reporting on the manifesto basically referred to our work on it and said that this these you know this is basically a trap for journalists and it basically stopped the kind of mass shooter having his final you know the last laugh with what happened rather than tricking the media um it was pointed out exactly what he was doing and because we could get it out first thing in the morning in europe it would gone through the European media before reaching the US media, who also uh, reacted, you know, to our article in a you know, positive way. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, that's no. It's been a really uh, fascinating discussion, and and thanks for covering so much ground in terms of the work that you, you you've done up to now and what's happening at Bellingcat, and giving us some insight into how you go about doing the things you do. Um, I suppose one of the challenges you've got still is perhaps managing expectations, where when people see what's possible and what's feasible in some of those cases, they almost expect you to do the same with so many other cases too. Is is that something you're, you're also trying to sort of deal with in terms of saying to people, actually, this isn't going to, these techniques aren't going to work every single time? Yeah, I, I, the thing is, we only publish our successes. So they, we don't publish all our failures, so we, it looks like we get it right every time. But there's plenty of stuff we do where we just can't figure it out. So, and you know, I, I think people kind of see what we're doing and they think, well, you know, if they can geolocate this, they can geolocate this photograph. Um, and you know, some, often that works. But you know, it, yeah, it's, it's not a magic wand. We can wave up stuff to you know find solutions. That's reassuring because for a moment there I thought you, you guys were making it look easy. But uh, <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's been great. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for sharing all of the, all of those insights and um, your thoughts on open source intelligence. Um, and yeah, thank, thanks for joining us on the podcast. And hopefully we'll speak to you again at some point in the future. And uh, we will await uh, the other podcasts you've got coming out and uh, the book when it eventually hits as well. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks, Elliot. Please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcast listening platform. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. <laughs>